Well, good morning. It's, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that we've got the programs that we do for our, our kids and our teens because there's times where you guys got to go do your thing, right? I'm also glad that we have times like this where we can get the whole family here together. It's, uh, that's a good thing, too. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, we are in week three of a series that we started a couple weeks ago where we're taking on some questions that people ask about God and faith and Christianity. And here's a couple of questions we've been wrestling with so far. Uh, what we wrestled with two weeks ago was this question. If God is all-powerful and if God wants to be known, well, why doesn't he just reveal himself in an undeniable way? That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Last week, we wrestled with a number of questions around prayer, including a question like this. If, if God is all-powerful and he wants us to pray, why do so many of our prayers go unanswered? And we're not talking about lottery prayers. We're talking about stuff like this. Why, why doesn't God answer prayers for healing and reconciliation and justice and, and deliverance from evil or temptation? And we totally answered that question last week. So well, we took a shot at it anyway. And here's the question we got this week. Oh, man, it doesn't get any easier, does it? If God is both great and good, why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? That's the question we're going to be addressing today. It was funny, after the service last, uh, last hour, someone came up and they said, well, the title is, Why Did God Make Mosquitoes? I want to know that one. Why didn't you answer that one? Well, it's embedded within this bigger question of why, if God is both great and good, why is there so much pain and so much evil and suffering in this world. There's a, a college student named Hillary, and when she was wrestling with these things, she came to the conclusion that, you know, there can't be a God, at least the God described in the Bible, if, if, if the world is like it is. Here's, here's what she said. She said, I don't believe. This is a, a girl named Hillary. She's a college student, a young adult. She says, I don't believe the God of Christianity exists. God allows horrible suffering in the world. So he might be all-powerful. Well, if he's all-powerful and he's not good enough to end evil and suffering. Well, you say he's all-good. Well, if he's all-good, then maybe he's not powerful enough to end evil and suffering. Either way, in her opinion anyway, the all-good, all all-powerful God of the Bible just couldn't exist. That's how she said it. I remember um, a time when I was having a conversation. Laura and I were in Chicago. and We were having pizza with some people. We met some friends. We saw some friends there at Ikea back when there was not an Ikea close, right? So we're in Chicago. We bumped into some friends there, and, and so we had pizza together, and we're talking, and, and he's not a believer. And so I was just bringing up some things of faith, and, and he couldn't go there with me. He couldn't go there. And, and one of his stumbling blocks, he said, all right, if God is real, if God is real, is this the best he can do? If God is real, this world with pain and suffering and all these things, this is the best that he can do. So these are questions that people have. And if you've got this question, in fact, I think almost all of us from time to time wrestle with this question. Well, what we're going to try to do today is we're going to try to take a look at how the Bible itself tries to respond to this question. So if you have a Bible with you, let's open up. John chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home, we want to let you know that we keep a stack of them here in, uh, at, at each door. And the purpose of that is for those that don't have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one free. You don't have to sign something or, or anything like that. Please take it. They're there. It's a gift for you. If you're a kid and you take the Bible, make sure you ask your parents permission before you read everything in it. There's some pretty intense stuff in there. And I'm, I'm being serious. You, you want to make sure you get your parents permission before you read everything in the Bible. There's some really intense scenes. All right, well, let's take a look at something that the Bible says related to this topic. John chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Sometime later, 
Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called what? Bethesda. Remember that. Bethesda. And it's surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number, remember that number, a great number of disabled people, they used to lie there. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked this man, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I want to hit pause right there because that's a fundamental question. Do you want to get well? How many people were lying around that pool? What does the Bible say? Great number, multitude. Jesus doesn't just stand up and ask everybody, hey, do you want to get well? Because I think everyone would have said, yeah, that's why we're here. Do you really want to get well? And the reason I'm pressing this point home is I think related to this question of the problem of evil, most of the skeptics that I've talked to, they, they don't want answers that don't conform to their worldview. They're, they're not open to that. And, and, and that's not everybody who's skeptical about Christianity. There's a lot of open-minded people who are skeptical, but most of the people I've talked to personally, they just want to hear something that conforms to what they already believe about God or about truth. And my hope is if you're a person who's wrestling with this question right now, that you at least be open-minded as we continue on and we look at how the Bible responds to this problem of evil. All right, so we have this situation here where Jesus is, is going up to Jerusalem. He comes to this area where all these people are there. And, and why are they there? Well, let's take a look. The, the, the person who Jesus talks to, and let's just call him Matt, all right? Jesus talks to this guy named Matt, picking up with verse 7. After he had asked Matt, you know, hey, do you want to get well? Here's how he replies. Let's take a look at this. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Matt says, sir, I have no one to help me get in the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. You might be asking, what's up with that? Well, here's what's up with that. This, um, this is, is presented as a real account. There are times where Jesus tells a story. And there's other times where we read in the scriptures something that is presented as it really happened. This is presented as it really happened. This is a, a, a his, it has all the characteristics of, of a real event. This is from an ancient document that we now call the book of John, collected in this collection of ancient documents that we call the Bible. And if you were to take any ancient document and you were to try to look for, for signs of whether or not this was accurate, this passes those tests. The author was an eyewitness. He places the event on a real timeline at a real location. The facts are verifiable here. Facts are verifiable. And so this is a real place. It was, it was a pool called what? Bethesda. It had a real name. Bethesda means house of mercy, which is very appropriate for, for this setting. It means house of mer mercy. It is fitting for the name of a pool where people like Matt came to get healed. And archaeological evidence confirms this was a real pool in, in Jerusalem. And here's the thing. People believed at this particular pool, at that particular time, there were all of these people who believed if you come to this poolside and you see the water stirring, that's an angel doing that. And when that water stirs, if you're the first one in, you get a special gift of God's grace and you're going to be healed. So all these people would sit around this, this pool and they would wait for that water to stir and they believed an angel did that. And they thought, if I'm just the first one in, I can be healed. Well, Matt says, I, I want to get healed, but here's what happens, Jesus. I'm, I'm here by the edge, and I, you see my condition. I can't get in. 
And so I want to be the first one in, but there's always someone that gets in before me. So yeah, I want to get well, but it's not working. It's not working for me. Here's what Jesus says to him. He says in verse 8, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was when? The Sabbath. Now, there's a couple details in here that would be very confusing to people. People who, 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 uh, who hear this story. Now, John is presenting this to people who some of which may have been there that day. You know, again, this is all verifiable. So he's putting it out there. And some people might go, yeah, I was there. I saw this. It happened. Guy got healed. Joined my soccer team. It was great. He was really good. But a lot of people who weren't there would have been confused when they heard this. This event would have confused a lot of religious people. Because they would have been thinking, well, wait a minute. If you're in that condition, it's because you sinned. Because you were doing something wrong. And why doesn't it mention anything about Matt trying to make what was wrong right? And was Matt holier than the rest of the people? So that he got the blessing? Come on, why doesn't the Bible answer this? And why, if this was a religious thing, why did God have... have extend healing to a guy like Matt, who the very first thing that he does once he's healed, he breaks the Sabbath. What is going on? So, so all the theological people who would hear about this, they're all thinking all these theological thoughts. Well, this event also would have confused secular people too. Because a secular philosopher might be saying, wait a minute, if God was involved with the healing here, why did he wait 38 years? That doesn't make sense. And why didn't he heal all the poolside people? Why Matt? So you've got the theologians, they're asking all these questions. And you've got the philosophers, and they're asking all these questions. And Matt, he's out going to buy some boots because he's going dancing at the hoedown. That's what he's going to do. Or he's going to go play capture the chickens. You guys, you argue about what happened. I just experienced a miracle here. I'm good. I'm going to go. Not too long ago. I was listening to a song by uh, an artist named Rich Mullins. Love Rich Mullins. And I was struck by these words, and I think he is referring to this account that we just read and this topic that we're talking about today. Rich Mullins writes in his song, The River, he said, I remember, I was just a kid. I used to listen in the sky, and I believed that I could see God's activity when the wind would stir. But now I've learned, <laughs> after all these years, I've learned this river, it is these currents, they are tricky. And this river, it is wide. These currents are so strong. He nails it. He nails it. You can sit and you can look at the surface. And you can have this expectation of this is how God works. And I'm going to be watching for this particular thing. And if it doesn't fit this mold, then it can't be God. This is what I'm looking for. But those who immerse themselves in the faith, God shatters our expectations all the time. And there's so much to faith that is beyond the surface. It is so easy to watch for a sign and miss the Savior. Let me say that again. It is so easy to watch for a sign and miss the Savior. You know, I imagine, what if things would have been different? What if Matt would have been there right on the, on the edge of the pool, right? He, he's, he, he can't walk. So he's, imagine if he positioned himself right on the edge and he's watching that water because as soon as that water stirs, what does he want to do? He wants to be first in, right? So he's there so he can just roll in. He's like, I, as soon as I see that water ripple, I'm going for it. I'm going for it. Imagine if that was the case. So he's there. Now imagine this. Imagine Jesus comes up behind him. And imagine Jesus says, hey, Matt, Matt, do you want to get healed? And imagine instead of saying, 
you know, yes, they're responding to Jesus. Imagine if Matt said, shh, can't you see I'm waiting for my miracle? Can't you see I'm waiting for my sign? Go bother somebody else. Imagine if that's what he did. He was, imagine if Matt was so fixated on what he thought was the sign of God's activity that he missed the Savior. You know, I, I think about Hillary. We quoted her earlier. She's doing the same thing. Isn't she? She's got this preconceived notion of what God should or shouldn't do. And instead of being open to, wait a minute, maybe my paradigms are wrong, she says, if God doesn't fit my box, if God doesn't get rid of the things that I think he should get rid of, then he can't exist. You know, and, and, and I think about the, the guy that we spoke with in Chicago. I mean, he's doing the same thing too. He's, he's got a, a, an understanding of this is what a perfect world should look like. Therefore, if this world doesn't look perfect, then a perfect God can't exist. It's so easy to fall into that trap, to set expectations of God that may or may not be true. But if God doesn't fit our box, then we reject him rather than question that maybe our box has got some issues to it. In my experience, Rich Mullins, he is right on. He is right on. This river, it is deep. It is wide. These are currents that are strong, and they are tricky. And there's so much going on beneath the surface. All right, in a nutshell, here's what I hope to happen today. In the, in the last few minutes that we've got together, here, here are my three goals for today. I'll just tell them to you right up straight at the beginning. The first thing I want to do is I want to offer more than a one-size-fits-all answer to the problem of evil. One of the reasons it's so hard to answer this question is that there is no one answer. There are a lot of different reasons why there's pain and suffering. We're just going to touch on five today. We could, we could extend that list literally to hundreds. But I want, to, I want to break that paradigm that there's one reason why everything happens. Number two, the other thing I want to do is I want to challenge the notion that atheistic or agnostic philosophy has the intellectual high ground. There are those who say it is logically inconsistent to believe in a good and great God and have evil and suffering in the world. I, I beg to differ. And then number three, and this is most important, I want to invite those of you who are experiencing, who are personally experiencing painful and confusing circumstances to trust and follow Jesus of Nazareth. All right, let's start with this first one, and we'll have to move fast. Um, the first thing, uh, let me just start by giving a couple explanations of why pain, why suffering could be there. Number one, and there's a place to write this down in your notes. I encourage you to take out that green sheet and write this down. Sometimes pain and suffering is the result of what? Foolishness. Sometimes it's just that simple. You made a bad decision. Kids, I hear that in kids' church, you sometimes talk about making the wise choice. Is that true? Oh, that's so good that you talk about that. That's so important that you talk about making the wise choice. Adults, we need to remember that too, right? So important. And, and when you don't make a wise choice, often bad things can happen. Pain and suffering can happen. Kids, is it wise to cross a busy street without looking both ways? Is that wise? No, what could happen? I like how you said it. Could happen. That was really good. Yeah, bad things can happen, right? Adults, is it wise to spend more money than you earn? No. There's all kinds of decisions that we can make that are just foolish. They're just foolish. I, I have a bunch of objects on the table. And one of them is a, a beach towel. 
And that was to remind me of a, of a story uh, or an illustration of this. When, when we were in Juarez uh, this summer, one of the things that we did is we took the kids to a, uh, to a water park. And they had a new attraction at that water park. It was the highest attraction now that they had. They had this water slide. And this is one of those water slides where they have these gigantic tubes, right? So I'm walking up this thing. Some of the kids wanted me to go on this water slide with them. So I'm walking up this thing, and I'm thinking, this is really, this is bigger than the giant slide at the State Fair, which I used to think was the highest point in Minnesota when I was a kid. This is much, much, much higher. What, do you think, three of those? Probably, I mean, it was high up there. So I'm to the top. Well, I'm up to the top, and I'm watching this big tube go down. And I'm, and I'm watching how there's no, like, the, the lip is not really high. So I'm watching this tube, and I pretend this is the edge of the lip. I'm watching this tube come up and go over the lip. And I'm thinking, I want to get down alive. I'm a wise person, all right? I could have just, I guess, walked down the steps. But being a semi-wise person, I thought, what's my next best option? So we start looking around. Where are the smallest kids? That we can find. Because you tip three people in your tube, right? So, small kids, right? And then in my broken Spanglish, I said to the guy who was sending the tube down, I'm like, no mas grande push. Poquito push. No medio. Poquito push. You know, and so I'm trying my best to say, you just, in fact, you try to slow us down as much as you can. I'm in that tube and I'm not using hyperbole here, I am taking my heels, I'm pushing as hard as I can on the surface of that water slide because I'm watching that thing go like this, all right? I'm trying to be wise. I want to make it down alive. Now, imagine you're not wise. Imagine you're foolish and you get the biggest guys you can find up at the top and you say, I'm going to bobsled this thing. One, two, three. When you fly off that water slide and you go crashing down to the concrete, that's not on God. That's on you, right? And there's a whole category of things that fit in this category of foolishness. Why do bad things happen? Well, bad things happen sometimes because you're not wise and you do something foolish. All right, number two, here's another category. Some pain and suffering is the result of apple eating. Here's what I mean by that. On the, on the table there, I have an apple. And that's symbolizing a, a story that we find in the Bible of Adam and Eve. Kids, you ever heard that one before? Adam and Eve. Now, we don't know exactly what it was that they bit, but did God want them to bite that thing that they bit? He did. And when Adam and Eve ate that thing that God said, don't eat, did good things happen or bad things happen? Bad things happen. When we don't do what God says, that's another reason why sometimes there's pain and there's suffering. Because when, we, when God says do something and then we do something else, we start down a path that God in his infinite wisdom has told us that is a dangerous path. On that path, you're opening yourself up. You're, you're coming out from under my protection. You're opening yourself up to the evil one. Not only that, you're positioning yourself against me. You're putting yourself, you're aligning yourself in opposition to me when you disobey and while we're on this subject, sometimes bad decisions of other people can have bad effects. Sometimes when someone else does something foolish or someone else does something sinful, sometimes it's that that causes the pain and suffering. Obvious example, Hitler. Hitler was an apple eater. And when Hitler was eating that apple, millions of people, millions of people were affected by that. The person you trusted who hurt you, apple eater. That bully at your school, 
apple eater. Artists who create movies and music that make sin look good. Apple eater. People who design clothing and hairstyles in the 80s. <laughs> apple eaters. All of them. So, sometimes pain and suffering, it's a result of foolish choices. Sometimes pain and suffering, it's because there's sin. But that doesn't explain everything. Here's another category. Please write this down. Some pain, some suffering is linked to the battle that's raging. Notice I didn't say war. I believe the war has been won. The war, the decisive battle for that one was fought on the cross. But there's battles still going on. And in battles, people get hurt. I, I, I've, on the table, I've got some paintball gear. How many of you ever played paintball before? All right. There's an expectation when you go into battle playing paintball that someone's going to get shot, right? Tagged, sorry. Someone's going to get tagged by the paintball marker in that game. But that's part of it, right? That's part of why you're going into this thing. All right, there's our flag. Let's go get it. Some of us aren't going to make it, but hey, this is what we're doing. This is part of the whole deal. A couple weeks ago, Several of us had a chance to listen to an interview with Colin Powell. He served in the U.S. Army for 35 years. He's a great leader. He rose to the rank of a four-star general. Well, the pastor who was conducting this interview, he accompanied Colin Powell to this event. And at this event, there were some wounded warriors, some men who, who sacrificed uh, greatly for their country and in their service. And he thought in particular of this one guy, and this guy was sitting in a wheelchair, and this guy could, I don't think he had his legs left or something. He, 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 was, he had been wounded that badly in, in the service. And so this pastor, you know, he's thinking in his head, well, what are the pastoral things that we would say to this guy? You know, and, and most pastors were trained to say things like, hey, I am so sorry that this happened to you. But you know what Colin Powell did when he went up to that guy? He looked that soldier in the eye. He didn't say, I'm sorry. He said, were you a good soldier? Were you a good soldier? And that's what that soldier needed. He needed someone to affirm that I did this. I made this decision. And I served my country. And I served my country with courage. That's what that soldier needed to hear. Sometimes things that happen that involve pain and suffering, sometimes it's the result, the direct result of taking that hill that God says to take. Here's a passage I want us to take a look at. This is, this is important for us to look at these passages. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 through 12. One of the reasons we encourage everybody, we encourage everyone, read the whole thing. is because you'll find there's so many different accounts that speak to so many different important topics. Here we go. Uh, this is the book of Acts, chapter 21, verses 8 through 12. And this is referring to a man of God named Paul who traveled all over the world taking ground for Christ. He says this, leaving the next day, we reach, and the we here, this is a man named Luke who's writing this down for us. He was, a, he was a physician. He's writing this down in his story. And he says, leaving the next day, we, Luke and Paul and these others, we reached Caesarea and we stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet, see if you can picture this in your head, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, he tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt. Who owned that belt? Whose belt was it? Paul. They will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Well, 
we heard this. And, and the people there pleaded with Paul, don't go up to Jerusalem. All right, let me pause here for a second. So Paul gets this warning from the Holy Spirit that says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you are putting yourself in harm's way. If you go to Jerusalem, pain and suffering waits for you there. And does Paul say, wow, thanks for the heads up. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. Here's what Paul says. And Paul says that in this instance, there are other times where he got warnings from the Holy Spirit and it wasn't right for him to go into harm's way. This time he knew he was supposed to go into harm's way. And so when he knew that God was calling him into harm's way, here's what Paul says. Paul answers, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am not ready only to be bound. I am ready to lay down my life in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. There are times we as believers, we're called into the war, into the battle. And there are times where the pain and suffering that we experience is a direct result of a noble, noble cause in which we're called to be good soldiers. Here's another one, number four. Sometimes bad things are linked to God's good work. Sometimes what we consider bad things are linked to God's good work. If you have your Bibles, open up, please, to Genesis chapter 45, verse 4. Or type it in on your smartphones. Any of you guys use version on your smartphones? It's a good app, isn't it? Free. It's really good stuff. Here's what it says. And this is the account. This isn't just a story here. This is the account of a man named Joseph. And Joseph often, and he, he was kind of foolish in his early years. At least he wasn't very tactful, let's say. But in his later years, he got in trouble for doing the right thing. That's one of the reasons we have this, this uh, guard-looking guy here up by the table. Because this is to represent Joseph when he got thrown in jail for doing the right thing. For doing the right thing. Well, in this account, here we're reading out of Genesis 45, starting verse 4. Then Joseph says to his brothers, okay, brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he says, he explains his understanding of these, quote, bad situations. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing, there will be no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was who? It was God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of Egypt. God had something else that he was working on, something he was up to. And what looked like something bad was really God positioning somebody for something good. Now, I want to say on this note, when a painful or suffering situation comes to believers, is it always God who sends it? No. But here's one of the things that's so important. God can take even the worst that comes your way, and he can turn it for good. I asked the 9 o'clock hour, I said, how many of you have ever held on to this verse? Can we see some hands here in this hour? Leave them up here for a second. How many of you have ever held on to this verse when you were going through something tough? Look around. See these hands? Okay, thank you. Should you pay attention to this verse? Do you see how many people sitting around you just said, I needed this passage at some point in my life? Romans 8, 28. 
We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is one of these passages we sometimes have to claim when there's all these situations happening in our life. And we're like, why is this? This is horrible. You know, what's going on here? We hang on. God can take even what was intended for evil and he can use it for good. When you're in the hospital for the hundredth time, God can use, whether or not that came from God or that came from the pit, God can use your faithfulness in suffering to witness to people. When you're going through hard things, God can use that. There, there, I've heard so many believers say, you know, what I once saw as a scar, it's a beauty mark now. Because God's using that painful thing for good, that painful experience, that thing that the enemy sent our way, and I'm seeing nods all over this room. God can take even horrible things and use them for good. All right, well, we're going to get to number five here in a second, but I want to come off of that list that we've just been working through because I want to make three important points, and I'm only going to touch on them really quick. So I said to 9 o'clock, listen quick, which made absolutely no sense, but I'll say it again, listen quick. Three quick points. The problem of evil, it does not present an insurmountable theological challenge to the goodness and greatness of God. You can cross that little extra uh in your notes for this one and the next one. Typo, my bad. The problem of evil does not present an insurmountable theological challenge. People might say, oh, this is not consistent. Your Bible's not consistent because it, it, it presents a God of love and a God of justice. It presents good and great. It presents evil. No, the Bible is completely consistent. It's just explaining. Our lack of ability to understand doesn't mean something isn't consistent. The Bible says there's good. The Bible says there's evil. The Bible says God is great. The Bible says there's still suffering. There's no theological problem there. There's just an inability to grasp. So there's not a theological challenge. Well, what about the philosophical, philosophical one? Some people might be saying, yeah, but, but it's not logically consistent, right? There's a philosophical challenge. Doesn't logic rule out the possibility of God if he's both great and good, and there's evil and there's suffering? I respectfully disagree. And I respectfully disagree passionately. I encourage you to write this down. The problem of evil does not present an insurmountable philosophical challenge to the goodness and greatness of God. Let's look at how a philosopher put it. Here's how one philosopher says it. Here's where he sees the inconsistency. Philosopher J.L. Mackey states, If a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil in the world, the traditional good and powerful God could not exist. Some other God or no God may exist, not the traditional God. Case closed, right? So says the professor. I'm not a philosophy guy, and even I can see holes in this. I'd imagine you can see them too. That is not a strong philosophical argument. It certainly isn't airtight. How can you have an unjustifiable, pointless evil without an absolute standard of good? And if you have an absolute standard of good, doesn't that point you towards the God of Christianity? Or at least hold out that possibility. And furthermore, it requires an unhealthy dose of self-confidence to assert that evil is evil if it appears evil to you. So you get to define it? You get to define what is evil and pointless. And if you think it's evil and pointless, then it's evil and pointless. Do you see how this thing starts to break down? It's not an airtight philosophical argument. 
All this to say, when pain and suffering create distance between you and God, it is rarely theological. It is rarely philosophical. Because there are theological explanations, there are philosophical explanations. If you're finding distance between you and God, it's rarely theological. It's rarely philosophical. It's usually what? It's personal. That's where the distance happens. Because you can come up with logical explanations. You can come up with theological explanations. But when it's your family doctor using the C word, and when it's your phone that rings at 2 a.m., and a real nightmare has just begun, and when it's you, you do the right thing, and then you get ridiculed for it or punished for it, or when it's your kids or your parents or your friends who are going down that painful path, Or when you see people who are starving and you see it with your own eyes, that's when you start to say, God, where are you? I get what it says in the Bible. I I, I, At least in here, I, I understand the philosophy. But come on. When you can see it, when you sense it, when you see injustice, when you're up and close and personal with it, when you then you feel it, and then that's where it's like, God, I I understand, but I don't understand. I get it, but I don't get it. And when you're experiencing it, that's when theology sounds hollow. That's when philosophy sounds hollow. Because you need something more than just a potential answer. I said I'd come back to number five. Here's why I waited till now. Here's number five. Sometimes the answers are elusive. What does that mean, kids? Kids, that means sometimes we don't know the answer. Sometimes we don't know why. There could be hundreds of possible reasons. Pain and suffering could be any of the things we mentioned already. Pain and suffering could be God's discipline. It could be that God is refining you. It could be that you've got the wrong paradigm. What you think is bad isn't bad. It could be that you're not turning to him for help. Sometimes he says you have not because you asked not. It could be a timing thing. It could be a hundred different things. But when you're going through it, that's often not helpful to just say it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. There are times where you pour out your heart to God. There's times where you you ask for answers and you're only met with, will you trust me? Will you trust me? There's a woman at the 9 o'clock and and I talked to her after the service and she's going through some really tough stuff right now. And she said, that's exactly what I hear. And she was able to say it with a smile on her face because she can trust him. She says, that's exactly what I hear. I'm praying. I'm asking, is there sin in my life? Is there something I should be doing different? Should I be fasting? Should I be praying more? She goes, I'm, I'm doing all those things, but I hear, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Well, why should we trust God? I have another object on that table, and it's a cross. And a lot of people look at that cross, and they say, that's no answer. A lot of religious people look at the cross, and they say, that's not an answer, because... From a religious standpoint, many people are locked into, if I do the right things, God should answer my prayers. And if people are evil, then they're the ones that should get smited, smoted, smitten. Smitten? No, really? I thought smitten is that thing when, oh, I'm smitten with, yeah, no, okay. Well, that's that's what a lot of religious people say. They go, "That that is a stumbling block for me because the cross sometimes... People who should be punished, they get forgiven. Sometimes people like Paul are doing the right things. They experience pain and suffering. So a lot of religious people go, I don't get that cross. And certainly a lot of secular people, a lot of philosophers, they don't get it either. 
Because they go, this doesn't make sense. Why the death penalty for sin? Are you kidding me? That doesn't make sense. And even if there is a death penalty for sin, how does the sin of one man atone for the sin of all who believe in him? So, again, like the situation with Matt, you've got the philosophers. They're saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. You've got the theologians. They're saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. And you have these people who are receiving it. And they're finding in that cross, they're finding the power of God at work in their lives. Some, um, some people, when they sum up this whole question that we're talking about today, they say it comes down to this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Answer that for me, Pastor. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm not the only one who falls back on this. Really, that only happened once. It only happened once. And it happened on a cross 2,000 years ago where the only perfect person to ever walk this planet willingly laid down his life and he experienced evil and he experienced pain and he experienced suffering. And that's the question that the, the account, that is the event, that is the historical event that really begs the question, why? If ever something that was evil, if ever suffering begged the question, why? It was the cross. Why? Why would, if there is a creator God, if he was all-powerful, all-loving, all-loving, why would he send his son to die for us? That's the question. Or that's the event that begs the question, why? And that is why person like Paul, who is arguably the most faithful follower of Jesus Christ to ever walk this earth, that is why he could trust God because of this cross, because God didn't spare anything for him. And he's been there. That's why Paul could trust God, even when he was persecuted for his faith, when he was beaten, when he was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was mocked. He could still trust God. That is why he could trust God, even though he never Married, He never accumulated wealth. When his friends deserted him, his peers turned against him, he could still trust God. And we see this. Here's, this is from one of his letters. This is a real person, real context, real letter. Take a look at what he writes. He, here's this guy who's trying to be faithful to God. And he says, I was given a thorn. I'm trying my best to follow God, but I'm given this thorn in my flesh. A messenger of Satan himself to torment me. So what does Paul do? He turns to God, as we should. He turns to God. He says, I pleaded. He doesn't just say, I asked. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said to me, say this with me. My grace is sufficient for you. That's what he was met with. My grace is sufficient for you. And why could that be good enough for Paul right then? It's because he knew God could be trusted that God didn't spare anything for him. Paul was a man of doctrine. He, he wanted sound doctrine. He taught sound doctrine. He taught us to teach sound doctrine. But in a time like this, it wasn't that he was putting his full faith in, in a belief system. He was putting his faith in a historical event where God sent his son to die for him. He could trust that. He could trust the cross. He could trust this stumbling block for religious people. He could trust this foolishness to atheists and agnostics. He could trust in the cross. And he found a power there that he could find nowhere else. And that power is available to us. 
For those who are making foolish decisions, at the cross you can find this wisdom of God. And you can begin this journey towards, I'm going to follow him. Even when he takes me, he says things that are counterintuitive. It is counterintuitive that life comes from death. Okay, then maybe it's counterintuitive that I'm going to experience more life as I give mine away. In Jesus' name. There is power there for the fool. There is grace and forgiveness for the apple eaters. Can I get an amen on that one? Do you hear that? There is grace for those of you, those of us, all of us, who have disobeyed God. There is grace and forgiveness there at the cross. Where, where there, you are met with a God who says, I know everything you've ever done. And listen, though your sins were like scarlet, I want to make them white. And, and your life that is all messed up because of you and your decisions, I want to help you turn it around. I am here with you. I know exactly what you did. I know that you knew it was wrong. That's in the past. This is day one. Let's start again. There's power there. There are weapons there in this cross. For those, you want a cause? You want a cause? There's a cause here with God that is more noble, more vital. Eternity's on the line. And not only does he want to call you and inspire you with that cause, he wants to equip you with weapons that actually work in this spiritual battle. That's there. That's there. And there's this confidence, there's this truth that God is always working behind the scenes. Even when it looked like all was lost as Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was at work. And he was, he was going to take and take this dark Friday and he was going to bring something forth on Sunday that was going to change the world forever. He still does that today. When answers don't come easy, when answers don't come easy, it's so important to have that cross. Because you can have all the theology, you can have all the philosophy in your head, but you need something, you need something that you can hold on to. Or I guess, you know what, more accurately, something that will hold on to you or someone. That's why God gives us his church, these other people who've been broken, these other people who've come to the cross, to come around each other. You know, I love the fact, I was talking to Joel earlier today, and, and he said, you know, you don't even have to ask if anyone's here this week to pray. We will have people here to pray with you. There's people that would love to pray with you today. They would love to. There's people that will walk with you through these things. And God sends his church so that it's not just about getting the doctrine right, but you've got people to come alongside you when you're, when you're not just thinking why, because you could answer that question yourself, but when you're, you're, you're feeling the why, to have people to come around and say, I'll sit with you. I'll be there with you. And then to know that we've got a God who's been there and a God who's demonstrated, I will never leave you or forsake you. He didn't just say it, he demonstrated it. God the Father sent his son, gave that which was most precious to him. God, the son, is the one who took the nails himself. God, the spirit, can intercede, the scripture says, for us. When we don't have the words, the spirit of God can intercede for us. Will you, like Paul, in these times, say, your grace is enough. That's how we want to close today. We have a, Jill's going to come forward and, and let's proclaim this. You know, 
we, we never want to just have sing-along time. You might have noticed that if you're here long enough. We don't do sing-along time. We don't, we don't do entertainment through song. We, 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 we invite people to take these words and this music and make this a proclamation. And today, would you be willing to say, okay, I want to be healed. It may not look like I expect it to look like, but I'm going to trust you, God, because of what you've done on the cross. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust the who you are piece. And I'm going to say to you, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. Let me pray for us as we enter in this time. Father, you've said you inhabit the praises of your people. We're claiming that promise today. That as we in faith say the words, your grace is enough. Your grace is enough. That you will inhabit these prayers. You will inhabit these words. You'll descend on us. And that your Holy Spirit will fall on the people who need to proclaim it in faith because they don't feel it. Lord, would you saturate their hearts and saturate their minds. Give them a vision of what you've done and who you are so that they can trust those words. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Trust me. Maybe someday you're going to see what I'm doing right now. Maybe they'll see, oh, I needed to let go of that. Maybe they're going to see this is a fallen world and my job right now is to be a good soldier and fight the good fight. I don't know what they're going to see, but Father, would you, would you give them that faith to say your grace is enough right now, your grace is enough right now, your grace is enough right now for me. Inhabit our praises. Inhabit these words. Descend on us out all that is not of you in Jesus' name. Amen.
blessing on you as you go forward. Father, today, I feel like I'm supposed to um, ask that your blessing, or not ask, pronounce, okay? I'll do that. Lord, I want to pronounce a blessing of perspective upon our people. Would you bless us with perspective? Would you help us to see the cross for what it was? historical event. A moment where, where you demonstrated your commitment to us. That you're all in. Lord, that's a bigger thing than anything we face. So without taking away from any of the pain or suffering that is very real in this world, Lord, will you grant us that perspective? could be trusted that you could be trusted and that you're good and that you're great and that in those times where we have to walk by faith and not by sight your grace is enough bless us with perspectives we go forth in Jesus name amen